This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then, they read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is the writer Eileen Miles, who has published more than 20 books of poetry and prose, and whose honors include the Publishing Triangle's 2020 Bill Whitehead Lifetime Achievement Award, an American Academy of Arts and Letters Award, multiple Lambda Literary Awards, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. Welcome, Eileen. Thanks so much for joining. Hey, Kevin. Glad to be here. So the first poem from the archive you selected to read is Without by Joy Harjo. Tell us, what about this particular poem caught your attention while you're looking through the archive? Um, You know, it's pretty recent, so I almost felt like that was cheating. But, um, you know, I just saw it in the fall. And A, I I like Joy so much. We met a few years ago, and we kind of immediately got a hit of each other being peers. And that was interesting to be on this planet in the same amount of time and have things in common and stuff. And so right away, I saw the poem, and it just, it's spacious, like, I love a poem that has lots of air between the lines. I read it right away because she's a friend. And first, the title, I think, is amazing because titles of poems are funny because they're, like, outside the poem. And somehow a title, like, without is sort of like a doubling. Like, it seems, like, very unstable. Like, you're outside of the poem, and it's almost telling you that it's further out in a way. Or, or what does it mean? So I went into the poem with a kind of nice, unsteady, abstract feel. And the first line is incredible because it's so full. It's like a thesis statement. It just announces the world will keep trudging through time without us. Well, why don't we listen to the poem? This is Eileen Miles, reading Without by Joy Harjo. Without. The world will keep trudging through time without us. When we lift from the story contest to fly home, we will be as falling stars to those watching from the edge of grief and heartbreak. Maybe then we will see the design of the two-minded creature and know why half the world fights righteously for greedy masters and the other half is nailing it all back together. Through the smoke of cooking fires, lovers trysts an endless human industry. Maybe then, beloved rascal, we will find each other again in the timeless weave of breathing. We will sit under the trees in the shadow of Earth's sorrows, watch hyenas drink rain, and laugh. That was Without by Joy Harjo, which was published in the October 11th, 2021 issue of The New Yorker. Thanks for that great reading of the poem. 
um, you were talking about the capaciousness of that first line. Could you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, I just I, I think that there's nothing held back, which in a weird way means that the job of the poem is sort of already done and then the rest becomes an experience, you know? The thing that's funny about this poem is it keeps ending itself for me. Like the second uh -huh. line, I think it's very funny because when we live from the story contest to fly home, I can't help thinking that's a professional poet line. You know, like <laughs> hunker down over the leaves of thousands of poems. It's a gig. And then you rise up and then fly. And it's both the funniness of what we do, but it also seems like about dying. Mm. Mm. It's so it's very mortal, like flying home where? Sure. You know, but also this without, as you said, it, it kind of um, both creates this presence and an absence, which I think is the poet, is the person, is the I who won't be there forever, but it's sort of immortal. There's a weird way in which the poem is saying the world will keep trudging through time without us. There's things beyond us. But then at the end, there's that idea of we will sit under the trees in the shadow of earth sorrows, watch hyenas drink rain and laugh, which sounds both far away and maybe a vision of paradise, but also somehow really earthbound. And, and very, very intimate. And then again, very funny because, I mean, maybe I've never watched a hyena drink rain and maybe they do that or maybe they don't do that. But I know that hyenas laugh. So the thing that's so funny is I feel like she squeezed the hyena and the laugh hopped to the a few words later. And it felt like a human animal moment. Mm, yeah. With the other person and with the hyenas and the rain. Right. Yeah. Is that how you see the we? You see the we as an intimate we or is it a group we? How do you see that? Well, I think I tend to think of this poem as a memorial. I think the sexiness of the beloved rascal, this is either a real cohort or a lover. You know, and rascal is such a good word. It's like the person keeps going after death. You know, they're clearly still in her in some real way. But, you know, the, the line I really want to jump on, which kills me, is we will be as falling stars to those watching from the edge. You know, she does such tricky lines because they end and then they don't end. And you probably went to McDonald's Observatory when you were in Texas. Did you go to the... Oh, I, I don't think I did. They have a great planetarium here, and they do this amazing thing called a star party. And you go mm. and you sit under the sky, and an astronomer with this laser beam points to things. And we looked at the North Star. We looked at some star down at the edge. And he said, well, you know, 15,000 years ago, that star down there was up where the North Star is. And for the first time in my life, I understood space as a sphere, as something yeah. turning. And this line is like, oh my God, we will be as falling stars to those watching from the edge. Like what edge joy? <laughs> right. It's very diagrammatic and just really powerful. And then of course she undercuts it of grief and heartbreak. So yes. it's really architectural, but in big nature. Yeah. I love that architectural and big nature. That's a great name for <laughs> the aesthetic here. But also I think you know, she's been poet laureate for three years, and um, it feels in this poem like very American, but also global and solar and, and cosmic in that way. I think that's really what's interesting about that ending um, or the smoke of cooking fires, lovers, trysts, and endless break human industry. You know, those things seem all 
quite different. Cooking fires, so, you know, primal and dawn of time. Uh, same with Lover's Trysts, I suppose. And then endless human industry, which feels both recent and also eternal somehow. And the opposite of all those other things you just mentioned, because all those things are kinds of undoing, like cooking fires, lovers, trysts. It's just like they're here, but they're always going away, kind of. Right, right. And then we're like human industry, work, 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 you know. <laughs> and can we say a little more about beloved rascal, one of my favorite terms <laughs> ever? How do you see that? I mean, it's like this moment of speech in a poem that's filled with speech. Right. Rascal is one of those words. It's both weirdly animal. Again, it seems to really be referring to an animal quality in a human. And yet I can't help thinking of the person's face when I, I just think of rascal faces. It's a particular smile. It's a wink. It's like somebody sexy that knows they will get away with it, you know, and that's what you love about them is they're good and bad. So it's a very cartoon word, but, um, mm. but it's so deeply, deeply fond you know. Right. Well, and I love this. We will find each other again in the timeless weave of breathing. I mean, after that dash, after human industry, in a way, it's the only punctuation in the poem. And I love a good dash. I mean, a good dash is like separating us, sending us in the future. It's like an arrow. It's also like an equal sign. It's like the, the most interesting to me of punctuation, but it's also sort of past Dickinson, but also with her same concerns. It almost is this kind of, I don't know, imagined earthly, but also timeless paradise. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's just a line and, and yet it's like a midline, you know, <laughs> it's partially drawn and it just like, it alerts you like something's going to happen. And then there it does, because the beloved rascal too, is it's like, I'm talking to you, you know, <laughs> it's so directed. I mean, the poem's a memorial, you know. We will find each other again in the timeless weave of breathing, which again reminds me of all the poems on the floor. It's sort of like there's just this complexity, this pile, you know? So it's not, it's not sentimental, like I'll see you again one day. I'll kind of forage and I'll find you. But it also means my death and yours, like she's dying with the person. Well, in the shadow of Earth's sorrows, you know, they're under the trees, you know, they're, they're sort of shadowed from them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so held by nature in this way. Um, and then she, ha I mean, it's cruel. The two-minded creature, I was like, I didn't even stop and think what exactly does that mean? But she goes into like this politic, this very swift politic. Half the world fights righteously for greedy masters and the other half is nailing it all back together again. And again, that's like, feels like practical working joy. That feels like human industry that she just can make a quick study of what it is that she sees about the world. I like that. I was just thinking about that two-minded creature. I mean, you're talking so beautifully about the mix of the animal and the human, and in fact, sort of seeing one in the other, um, that I think it's really interesting that this creature is two-minded and, you know, obviously feels human, but also I think feels like there's something else that in the end, the beloved and rascal is also kind of two-sided, but also unified. I suspect that we're all two-minded creatures. I mean, it might be the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it also helps that it's the we. If, if the poem had said I or you, I think it would change somehow. And there's something about that we that feels, as you hinted, intimate, um, but also, I think, broad, 
but it's past some Whitman-esque notion to me. It's more cosmic than that, though Whitman might have said that's what he wanted. Um, I, I think for me, there's something of the beloved in that we. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very old, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the collective. I think it's hard to do sometimes. And I'm looking forward to talking about your poem because I think you nail this I in a different way. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm drawn to the we a lot. And I think poets are. But I also like how here it feels so specific and also slippery in the best way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like everybody is sort of invited in and away at that moment, which is so it's so sweet. Yeah. What a great poem. Uh, let's talk about your poem here for a moment. Now, in our August 24th, 2015 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, Dissolution, which we'll hear you read in a moment. Is there anything you want to say about the poem first? Anything listeners need to know up front? Mm, I mean, only just my awareness, you know, 2015, that's like seven years and already it's a different world. The world I wrote this in does not exist anymore already. And that's part of the, the kind of uncanniness about writing poems, right? It's sort of like you put it down, then it passes. Absolutely. Here's Eileen Miles reading their poem, Dissolution. Dissolution. Sometimes I forget what country I'm in. I could write poems in bed. I think half some Americans look at your awful movie to tell you when you're wrong and just racist. I get this bug bite that could be anything. Got no new information to send across. I'm willing to embrace new sort of cranny tone, scribble version of empty so it's kind of full. A kid could draw this world it had been lived in for so long. You forgot to call your family and now you're ready to write an explicit Bible of love. The ripple of experience is the only beauty here. My coloring book, Why Not, is so like a movie. And I just hand you this damp coloring book. I say, there. That's my model. Not the kind of laminate shit you can bring in the tub. I'm not making some picture book of bourgeois life. A damp coloring book is naturally orange. You left it outside. Now you want to save it? It's still good, and that's your secret. How did a mosquito get under these sheets, knocking against my calf? They stop when I stop thinking about them. The book that was my very private thing is gone. That was Dissolution by Eileen Miles. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. I love hearing this poem. Um, It feels actually, you said it's sort of far, but I feel like it feels ever-present and ever-relevant. I don't know, something about the opening... Sometimes I forget what country I'm in. I assume even in 2015, that might have seemed unlikely uh, as a statement. Uh, But I could write poems in bed, I think. Have some Americans look at your awful movie. That sort of humor, but also 
pointed commentary, I think, feels very necessary still. Is that how you hear it in the opening? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. Of course, I don't know how you feel, but I so often when I read a poem or look at a poem, I can remember exactly where I was. And I was in bed at McDowell. <laughs> and, and an artist colony is a funny place. I think we're avoiding the word colony these days, you know, because it's this awareness that you're a part. Somehow you're in this lovely little sinecure where you're outside of the thing, but you're never outside of the thing because the thing is inside there with you. And so I think I was writing it from this kind of cozy sense of discomfort, you know. Cozy discomfort, that's a great, <laughs> great phrase. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I was thinking about something like the book I make. You know, it's like whatever it is that we're doing in our life, making art, I just think there's a sense that you're always making this book and it keeps changing and it keeps falling apart and it keeps being, you know, shitty. The word shit is in the poem, so I guess I can say it in the podcast. It's just, it's sort of like this thing that you're trying to always make the thing that will stay and then the thing is always collapsing, you know. <laughs> Sure. It's gone. Well, I started thinking about a few things. I mean, I love so many lines in this poem. I got this bug bite that could be anything. It feels also the way it's told. I got this. It feels very American. And I feel like the whole poem is using Americanness or American language to critique America in some way or critique the self that, as you said, has this kind of comfortable discomfort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what were you thinking about this got? got no new information. Um, I think, you know, because I had just shared something so bodily, I then felt like I was supposed to say something more important and then I didn't have it. So I said that, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, and I think the poem is comfortable and uncomfortable with this crayon tone, you think? Or the, is the poem just like, I'm declaring that. I'm willing to embrace new sort of crayon -y tone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I think it is the thing that you point to. It's vernacular. I know how many Englishes there are. I know a lot of them. And yet this is the one I seem to be comfortable in and I'm making art in. So I want to say, I know what it is, even as I'm doing it, you know, like this crayon -y tone is the gut and the, you know, direct talk I'm using. But I, I think that what you say after that is very important scribbled version of empty so it's kind of full mm -hmm. it isn't the void and it isn't avoiding it's filling up the space even as it's sketching it in mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and i think everything is like that whether it's artists using really simple materials that should be children's and yet it's sort of like in some way the the simplest statement is the most complicated one um that's right well, and I think the leaps are like that, too, for me. I, I love the second stanza. You forgot to call your family, and now you're ready to write an explicit Bible of love. There's this <laughs> leap to how um, even within that stanza, the person goes from one thing to a huge thing, a, a scribbled large epic, you know, of love. Well, families, too, are so complicated because... I mean, A, they're always changing. Like, my mother died since then. That's the first thing I think of when I look at that. You forgot to call your family. The only person I ever forgot to call was my mother, you know? And it would be like a late night thought, oh, I didn't call her, you know? And it's just like, you've been bad. And so then again, it's like the ripple of experience is the only beauty here. I then have to go be a hero, 
because I'm actually a bad child, you know? <laughs> right, right. No, forgetting to call your family, it has to be someone important. And and having lost a parent, it's like you can't then make that call. But the poem kind of also makes it seem like that's what all you can do is is make that reach, make that attempt. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I totally, I totally think that's what poetry is. It's like the inadequate call, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Late night, uh, preferably. Mm-hmm. Well, what about this movie and this coloring book? Is the poem saying it's not a movie basically it's this damn calling but these are in opposition what's the movie weight there i mean i think again i think movies are like the magnificent art form i feel like secretly don't we all want to make movies you know and i don't make movies but i want to make movies so i have to decide that my coloring book is a movie i don't need a movie i've got this coloring book um um right right but not the kind of laminate shit you can bring in the tub. I mean, it, it ain't fancy. <laughs> right. And that's so silly because I don't know if you have kids, but I remember the, I remember when I was a kid, I had the coloring book you could bring in the tub. They were so wanting kids to read that they would even give you a laminated book, you know? I, I'm sure I destroyed whatever book that might have been. But um, that other stanza, the third one, the ripple of experience is the only beauty here. You mentioned it. It's the coloring book, but it's, also more than that, it's that ripple of experience. It, you have to get it wet. It has to be in the rain. It has to have this kind of dissolution behind it. Dissolution is, is kind of, you know, you might start out thinking it's a bad thing. It feels like it's, you're not so against it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that somehow that it's wet seems like a good thing. It's sort of like maybe everything is wet and that's what's so great about it, you know? I think I also saw it once in a movie um, somebody had a dirty orange coloring book that was maybe pornographic in some way and they hid it behind a bush and it just kept deteriorating and it was just a model that I never stopped thinking about. It's just a secret picture that stands in for something that even I can't identify. Right. Well, I love that. I mean, that's another metaphor for poetry. And I think the, I mean, we've all but said this, but it feels like an ours poetic in some way or a poem about poetry. And how aware are you when you're writing something like that? Or has it just come out that way? I have one eye closed. <laughs> you know, I think the, the message is to, well, I'm writing and I'm thinking, okay, I think this could be a biggie. This could be, I don't know. And then I just think, shut up and keep walking. Because it's exactly that. Like, I feel like for me, the best line is like, they stop when I stop thinking about them, you know? And I don't want the poem to stop, but it is about that thing that everything is about attention and you just have to stay in the thing and not lose it, you know, because yeah, it'll be over when it tells you. <laughs> That's right. It's interesting because you, you mentioned that last stanza, how did a mosquito get under these sheets knocking against my calf? They stop when I stop thinking about them. And then this book that was this private thing it's, it's vanished or is it like gone because the telling, as you said, is, is done or is it gone because it's no longer secret? I think all that motliness and kind of wreckedness that I'm trying to protect or pronounce in the poem, suddenly I realize it just ends by just being nada. It just it just it will disintegrate. It will dis, it will dissolve. You know, what I think the poem is probably about is everything just finally will come to nothing, and that's okay. 
Well, I, I like that idea. Um, I think it's there too. And this kid who could draw this world, it had been lived in so long. There's something about that kid. And you even mentioned like this kind of idea of the kid getting in the bath, but also hiding away this secret book. I don't know. There's, there's a lot there to me. I mean, we're still generated by the kid. <laughs> you know, I feel like listen to the kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this sort of start, which loops back to the beginning for me and, and this bug bite, it too could tell this important story, you know, or have this past. Like there, there's a kind of wonder, but also not wonder. There's also a kind of like, leave me alone, kid. Um, leave me alone, mosquito. I got this poem to write, but also that's what the poem's about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's like, oh, never mind. It's gone and it was going to be gone. And so, you know, we're, we're okay with that, I guess, because it got us out. <laughs> <laughs> Do your titles come first or last? Do you remember how this one came? I think it was there right away because I think I was feeling like, whoa, <laughs> look at this, you know, <laughs> was not feeling, it was just a, there was a pre-complaint and I think <laughs> that was the title, I think. Yeah, I love that. It's a great word. I know, I know. It's like <laughs> dissolute. It's like so bad. <laughs> right. It's not just simply, you know, I don't know. It's it's a lot of things at once. It's an accusation, but also uh, a state of mind. It, it's like, but somehow it's baked in. I don't know. It, there's something about it that's really great. But it also has this kind of almost pun in it. Like there is a solution somewhere in it. Yes, yes, which I know. It's funny. I never thought about that, but it's absolutely true. And it's, I mean, it's a wet poem, so how could it not have that in it there? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, you brought up one thing I want to ask you about in a bigger way, which is, um, I think, contained in the poem, too. But do you think poems have changed in the past few years? You're saying it's a different world in some way. Do you feel like poems have responded to it? Have your poems responded differently to these past few years of pandemic and now war? I mean, how, how are we as poets dealing with such things? I mean, I guess it's like sort of an awful thing to say, but it's like bad things are really good for business for poets. You know? That is a terrible thing to say. <laughs> Didn't you? I wrote a lot of poems during the pandemic. Interesting. You know, it was very fruitful. And I know I haven't done much with the state of war, but I've done a lot with other bad things. It's like it puts you on edge because you're already there. That's well said. You know, and I think that, um, again, it's always that they need us, I think, you know, <clears throat> and even they know it, you know. Right. Well, for me, I, I definitely pulled out poems that I thought these are really dark and, you know, I put them away because they were too dark. I pulled them out at the start of pandemic. Like, these seem like, you know, April 2020 to me, you know, like it felt very urgent suddenly. Uh, and I think there's that urgency that I see, at least in the poems, that move me uh, and that are thinking in big ways, but also like you kind of said, they're already on edge, you know, and, and are able to describe it. That edge of grief and heartbreak that Harjo mentions, she doesn't think that's just started, you know, that it's eternal in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, like writing a poem is never a small act, but I think in enormous times, it's smallness does not feel small. You know, it just feels like it's just going into the cracks and saying, wait a second, there's a little space here. 
Well, and, and opening a door, a window, a, a, a mind, a, a moment, all those things are really important. And um, I'm always thinking about the extraordinary and the everyday, but there's also the, the language that can get lost, you know, in, in these moments that I think poets, I don't believe they like caretake it, but they point it out somehow. And because they can be so individual poetry at its best, it somehow is universal. I, you know what I mean? Like no one else can write the poems we're talking about today. Right. And I think people are all standing around wondering, opening doors and doing these things. How can I be here? Yeah. What should I do right now? And then I think when they pick up a poem and somebody opens a door, it's like, there's a better word than universal, but it's like everybody opens the door, you know? It's, it's a collectivity that we need so badly. That's right. Well, and I think that's the thing about the we and the I we were talking about a little earlier is the I in this poem feels so specific, but an I in a lyric poem or, or whatever kinds of poems we think we write now um, seem to me capacious, you know, and they invite us in to be that I for the length of the poem. And I like to think a few beats after. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's a dramatic I. And so it just, it takes some space. Well, I, I, I love your eye and I love talking with you uh, as usual. So um, thank you so much for this great conversation. It's been a good conversation. Thank you, Kevin. Dissolution by Eileen Miles, as well as Joey Harjo's Without, can be found on NewYorker.com. Joey Harjo most recently published the memoir, Poet Warrior. Eileen Miles' latest collection is Evolution. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and The New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs>